We should actually get biscuits. I feel like I'm lacking a Jaffa cake right now, and I think I'd really enjoy that. I worry about the munching so sounds. Oh, an audio format. Yeah, maybe. Thing. I don't know. Hi, welcome to Funny Women Behind the Scenes. I'm Mariana Feja. I'm Funny Women's digital creative strategist. And I'm Carmen Mackey, Funny Women's awards coordinator. Woo We're bringing you behind the scenes of Funny Women, where no one has ever been before. Unless they listen to previous seasons, but it's new, it's a new format, it's different, and we're going to be talking about all sorts of people and things in the comedy world. Yes, think of it as the staff room of Funny Women, mm. where we just chat about what's happening in the industry. Sort of on off hours, except we're, on, we're not off hours, but kind of off hours. Getting you a peek behind the curtain of funny women. We'll get some biscuits and tea and try to entice other people to join our staff room to chat to us. And one of our honorary members of staff, who's a member of staff for the purposes of the podcast. Scarlett Kefford, who is finding excuses to chat with exciting comedians. And this month, they're chatting to Abby Wamba, which you can listen to now. I'm Scarlett Kefford, and I'm chatting to Abby Wamba, comedian and Funny Women Awards Stage Award finalist, about entering the industry as a non-binary person. What does non-binary mean to you? It's less of a view about how I feel about myself, honestly, as how I feel about gender and the way that people look at gender. So for me, saying that I'm non-binary is an acknowledgement of something about myself, but it's also like, I just don't buy in. I don't buy into the fact that there's two ways you can be. And if you're any other way, you're wrong or something else. Why is it important to you? Why did you come to the conclusion of announcing it, I guess? Part of what started me talking about it, because I during the pandemic, I had already said I was non-binary to many people on my couch. You know, like <laughs> when, when this is like a private <laughs> conversation thing, like that I had been talking about for probably a decade with people who loved me since I found out the term and was like, oh shit, that's me, okay, yeah. But when I started feeling like maybe I wanted to talk about it to more people was when like we were all in Zoom rooms and everyone was putting their pronouns and I was like, uh, I was like, I don't know, like whatever. And also I was just like, I don't want to change my pronouns and my pronouns aren't my gender actually, or what I believe about gender. I think that it's positive to ask pronouns, but for me, I think that the way that I show up in the world is radical enough and I don't have to like take on that for myself because it's not what helps me in my relationships and my life. Like I don't feel like I need to take on changing my pronouns for me. I love respect and I'm so grateful to people who do and are who are like, who feel like that is how they want to engage in this conversation and how it's important for them. And I have just accepted for myself that that's not right now how I want it to be for me so I just talk about it all the fucking time for me I actually would prefer to just sum it all up with the word queer how do you feel about queer as an identifier I feel like fine with any word and I like the word queer because it feels like this broad identifier where I where I'm just like yeah, yeah, yeah me too and it doesn't feel like uh I need to sit down and explain a bunch of things to, to use that word and so I like it but um I don't know. I think that in relation to 
the world and like all of the categories that people are just like so mired in right now. For me and my current moment with my thinking about gender and my thinking about the world, it's sort of like, I want to be as inclusive to like everyone as I can, including like cishet, what, like everybody. I just want to be like, yeah, the straights, come on. We love you. Add an S in that LGBTQIAS. When I say I don't want to be not anything, like, sure, I want to be non whatever is bad in the moment. Like, I, I want to, like, stand up for what is right and, like, say, like, what I don't think is right. But I think that I can approach my relationships with anybody, including people who don't understand my thoughts and thinking and gender as I see it, with the hope that they're trying to. Like, every time I go up on stage I'm like I'm gonna come out to this room of strangers again that's a thing that I do when I perform and I don't always feel like it if I can do that if I go up there and I'm like expecting everybody to want to be on my side then it goes fine you want to like me we want to like each other and here we go so that's how you psych yourself up in that stage environment how do audience usually react to announcing that you're non-binary? Is it always as good as at the Funny Women finals where there was a huge cheer? It's not always that good. And I figured the Funny Woman audience would be a pretty accepting audience, but that was really fun and cool. But I think that the more I can make an audience feel safe, it's so funny and weird and backwards, right? Like, so I'm up there telling them this thing that I'm, that's like, a vulnerable admission about my life. But what I need to do for it to go well is to make the audience feel like it's safe. We're all okay. I'm going to tell, like, I'm telling you this thing, but I'm fine. So you can be fine too. And that works. Sometimes like in Denmark, when I go up there and I do that set, I have to spend a lot more time convincing them that they like me before I do that. Like I have to like if I make like one self-depreciating joke about how I know that they don't want to hear it, then they're on my side. Like they just need to like be acknowledged that I understand that nobody wants to hear gender jokes. I've only just started in uh, stand-up and something I'm using similarly when I talk about uh, my disability is anytime I say something that might make the audience slightly sad or not laugh it works either way if it's a silence or sympathy or a laugh no matter what I can still say thanks for your sympathy I would say that on my list of like awful reactions the thing that I would dread the most even more than like hatred is like sympathy is like an audience <laughs> feeling bad for me oh that's just this is a conversation I've heard before but like being called brave after you do stand up is like it's like a dagger to my heart. I'm just like, oh no, was that brave? Uh-oh. I sometimes prefer, I, I'm not very experienced. So I'm not saying this from my own experience. I'm saying it from watching better, successful and brilliant comedians when they'll make a joke and it only makes one person in the audience go, that's so fun, the cackler. I heard Gary Goldman say something like, and I'm also a very new comedian. I've been doing this for a little over a year and I really like it and I'm going to, keep doing it but I'm like reading everything I can and trying to really watch stuff in with intent or whatever which sounds violent I think but 
I I listen to Gary Goleman. I love Gary Goleman. He has these tips and he says, follow those laughs, like follow the laughs when you're a beginner that are like those people who are laughing so hard, but there's only two of them because those are your jokes. Those people are going to return. I love that advice because there are so many jokes that I tell myself I can't tell yet or I um, don't think they're broad enough, especially like I started doing stand up in Denmark where there's a really nice community of English language comedians, but it's small. And the people who come to the shows are often like not native English speakers and they have very wide experience. Like they're from all over the world. And like, I think that I like broaden my jokes in this way that I wouldn't necessarily if I were in the UK or in the States starting out. I just love that Gary Goldman thing as like a reminder that it's maybe that's not the point is for everybody to laugh. Maybe it's to figure out what makes you really enjoy this thing and follow that. So do you write two or three versions of the same joke in the same area where it's here's the broad version, here's the very specific niche version, or are they just separate? I don't think I do that. I, I definitely play to a room. I think I will explain something more if I feel like people aren't really getting it. But like generally, I'll decide the jokes based on the audience beforehand. So we've talked about audiences, but obviously it's not just audiences when you're entering this industry. How do you find the club circuit as a non-binary person? So those who run the nights, those who are also on the same bill, how have you found that? I have been very well received and I credit that entirely to the conversations that are happening culturally and the people who have gone before me. I get to reap all the benefits of their hard work and shitty experiences and be like, cool. Yeah, put me on your lineup. Diversify, baby. Uh, talking about here where we are on Funny Women, uh, how do you feel about applying for opportunities or using opportunities uh, in comedy that are aimed at women? I feel like if I feel like it applies to me, then they should feel like it applies to me. And that's how I felt at Funny Women. My experience at Funny Women was like, they were super inclusive to me. I never felt weird about it but I think again like I think of being non-binary as like a worldview rather than a, a self-view and so not rather than I think of it as both I think of it as like a way that I see myself in the world that that there is but a way that I would prefer the world to be I'm moving forward as if I can just be whoever I am with the body that I have and and like and I'm grateful for and respect and that doesn't have anything to do with expectations of how I hold a purse or a basketball it's just the way that I am and that's how I felt treated at funny women I felt like so 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 lucky to have that opportunity and never except for my own like trepidation, like, is this weird? Is this going to be weird? Nobody else made it weird. I just, I'm so glad for that opportunity. And I have to say, like, I know this is a funny women podcast. So people are going to think that they made me say this, but I wanted to be a comedian, did not know how to be a comedian, entered the funny women competition, and am now a comedian because I entered there, because of the support they gave me around it. I couldn't even believe their mission is to support women and non-binary folks in comedy. 
And they like not only supported me with that competition, they met with me afterwards. They like talked to me and helped me and like helped me make connections. They're just like, I cannot say enough good things about funny women. So that's a very, very uh, sexy promotion there. We have not paid you for that. (laughs) Uh, To flip to the other side of that, how do you feel about opportunities and spaces aimed at queer people in comedy? I think it's great. The ideal would be for like affirmative action to not be necessary because racism and sexism and homophobia don't exist. Now in the world, they do. They exist. So I think that any platform that encourages a group of people to engage in something that they've been like kept out from in covert or overt ways is good. I guess my final question is, obviously, once you are more established and you start phasing out the introduction of being non-binary and talking about being non-binary in your comedy, what areas do you think you want to look in and focus at next? And also, as an addendum to my already long and rambling question, (laughs) uh, do you think that you've had to talk about gender in order to for the an audience to know and understand what else you then want to talk about? I don't think I have to talk about it. I think that at some stages I thought that I did because I look the way that I look. There is a common comedy thing where it's like the elephant in the room, but there's like really no elephant in the room. You can talk about whatever you want on stage and if you're funny in a and confident, it's going to be fine. So I don't think that's true that I have to talk about whatever. I think I need to give the audience, you need to give the audience the benefit of the doubt that they're going to understand your experience based on what you're saying. But I talk about other stuff. I talk about my mom a lot. Sometimes I talk about being a parent. I talk about a lot of things I notice about language and I like that stuff. I am excited that like sort of the more I do this, the less I feel like I have to explain, right? Like there's like this thing, I feel like a little bit, I am doing this thing where it's like narration, like movie narration, like, and then Abby went on stage and explained so that the people knew a little bit about what she thought of the world and gender. So she could move on and talk about other things. I do feel like that a little bit. Also, I think that people are really connecting with my gender comedy right now so sometimes I want to talk about other things and I'm like if I have like an audition or a bigger thing coming up I'm like oh I have I'm gonna talk about this thing because that's what they want me to talk about which is fine because I mean that thing everything is still so new to me that it's good for me to work on the same material in a way but I like to just talk about everything I write a lot I have a lot of material what is your favorite non-gender related joke that you are either performing or working on now well this is like it fits in with that stuff but I do some jokes about homophobia that are I really I'm enjoying yeah they're like about the word homophobia it's incorrect homo as a prefix it means two things in latin it means man so like you're afraid of men which is just like any woman at night and then (laughs) there's the uh, greek prefix which means same and i just think it would be like fun if we used 
it like that. Like we were like, oh, like, yeah, like I'm afraid of that too. Like samesies, like ditto. Tommy and Timmy are to sleep over and, and Tommy's like, can you leave the lights on? I'm afraid of the dark. And, and Timmy's like, yeah, 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 leave the lights on. I'm homophobic. So thank you so much, Abby, for speaking to me today. Have you got anything you'd like to promote? I'm opening for Sophie Hagen, May 18th and 19th in Copenhagen and Aarhus in Denmark. So if you're listening from Denmark, you should go. Uh, and I have um, I have this audio piece that we talked a little bit about, I think, on transom.org, which is a American public radio thing that's kind of cool and you can listen to if you want to hear more about this stuff and read about. Man, I really love Abby. I'm really glad that they were involved with Funny Women last year. I think it's really cool. Yeah, I think the awards are like a great opportunity for us to find these people who are out there and build mm -hmm. relationships with them. I think it's really wonderful and I love that's part of my job. Definitely. And I think with the final last year, we had two of our finalists of our 10. So we have a fifth of the finalists were not just she, her identifying. And I think it's really exciting that Funny Women has gone beyond just representing women identi and identifying people and is sort of working as a spotlight or um, uh, to uphold and show other minority or previously marginalized genders and changing it up. It's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. And another cool thing I think funny women are able to do it as times go forward and as we build up more of a online cyber presence or whatever is the international yeah, bit definitely of it. i mean what well, abby's an, an american in denmark that sounds like a film yes. like, <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing isn't it we had 23 we had people from 23 different countries last year in the awards that's exciting which like seamlessly leads me to a segue into our next segment wow in, in which i'm talking to justin slash in australia She's our, our regional producer. Exactly. Yeah. And she wrote a book and I'm going to talk to her all about the book. So enjoy our conversation. We're catching up with Justine Sless, who, in addition to being our uh, regional producer in Melbourne, is also a researcher, teacher, performer, all things she is able to do with stand-up comedy. She does it, which is amazing. Uh, she will soon have her new book out, Mistress of Mirth's Comedy Tour, and we're here to catch up with her about it. Tell us a little bit about your book, Justine. Hey, uh, so the book Mistress of Mirth's Comedy Tour is the product of my uh, Master's by Research and Creative Writing from La Trobe Uni in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, the thesis really looked at um, the live open mic scene in Melbourne, comedy scene. And uh, the more I researched, the more I kind of realised what the book was about. So really... The, the, the thesis has turned into part creative, part semi-autobiographical, some research, and it's about humour as a power construct within the wider gender-based violence lens, which doesn't sound funny, but actually it is. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's one of the, the questions I had. You've adapted an academic thesis into a book that's being described as frightfully, frightfully funny, and which is also about a theme that is not necessarily frightfully funny. How do you achieve that? Oh, the whole thing is a meta-narrative about comedy. So it inaug the joke sequence inaugurates in Burke Mall, which is, is in Melbourne, and the word comedy is an acronym for Call Out Male Entitlement Daily, y'all, which is genius. And um, and, it, and it's an actual comedy tour. So it's kind of that blend of like a piss take of academic writing because it's first-person narrative but using uh, academic referencing. And it takes you into what is known as the temporal modality of comedy, which is you start on one track And then you continue on another as if it's completely natural. And there the laughter elicits. So that kind of blend, it is for me, that beautiful blend of what comedy should be really dark. And then you, you get the explosion of glitter that is laughter. And for me, uh, a good joke makes you laugh. An excellent joke makes you laugh and it makes you think. And I guess that's what I've tried to achieve in this book. That's great. Uh, there's also like, you, you've mentioned um, that comedy also could stand out for call-out male entitlement daily, y'all. It's an interesting juxtaposition with the fact that it is also a showcase of male entitlement every day. If we go to open mics or stand-up comedy gigs... What do you think about that? So so the, the kind of genesis of the thesis was really the first time I ever went into an open mic night. And I was, and I went on to do a lot. You know, I was the creative director of Melbourne Jewish Comedy Festival. I've written about comedy. I've done loads of Melbourne International Comedy Festival shows. But what haunted me was that initial foray into the open mic scene. And I, and I was continually kind of perplexed about why is it so hostile? Why is it so male-dominated? And why do I feel completely invisible? Um, and so so that was kind of the genesis of it. And, 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 and also what I found, the more I researched, the less I could find about, about that, about the live open mic scene. There's a lot about super successful comedians, John Rivers, um, you know, Sarah Silverman, Amy Schumer, but there's not a lot about that genesis, about the spaces where we are meant to learn the ropes of stand-up comedy. And, and I guess, you know, in the book I talk about um, the lack of formality, yeah? So it's an unregulated space, it's, it's licensed, and, it's, and, and, of course, that because it's predominantly licensed venues... Uh, predominantly occupied by men, so men become the gatekeepers of, of comedy and people see comedy uh, or, 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 I guess, because men have owned comedy, um, then people find it hard to accept that women uh, perhaps have a different technique around comedy. So for many years, women use self-deprecation in order to exist within those spaces. And that, of course, has changed and has, has eroded, in part due to more women being 
in the open mic scene. And of course, um, you know, in part due to incredible organisations like Funny Women as well. Uh, does that answer it? I felt like I was waffling right now. Yes, I, I think it, it does answer it because, uh, yeah, you justified why you started your research with the fact that it is a showcase for male entitlement every day, the open mic scene, which is uh, interesting. Uh, thank you so much for giving us your time. I'm, I'm so happy uh, that the book is coming out and that I'll be able to read it because this little bit made me really curious about uh, reading it. Thank you so much, Justine. Thanks so much for having me on. You know what, Carmen? I still haven't got my copy of the book through the post. I think it's probably just stuff in customs, maybe. I don't know. Um, when my I've got a, I've actually got an uncle in Tasmania who makes uh, gin, and when he like got his it all brought out, it's won awards and everything. It's really cool. But um, it he ended up sending four bottles out for each one of my family in in London, and over like a month. They all showed up at different times, even though he sent them out at the exact same time. So the postage system between England and Australia is indeed a very mystical thing. But yeah, hmm. little little tidbit of knowledge there for you guys. <laughs> um, if you want to send something to Australia, make sure you send it with a lot of time, basically, as long story short. Anyways, I think I might have gone off track just then, but um, why don't you ask me where I went last week, Mariana? Where did you go last week, Carmen? Well, Mariana, um, I went to the British stand-up comedy archive at the University of Kent. Oh, wh what is that? <laughs> yeah, there's. turns out there's a stand-up comedy archive, a British one, <laughs> at the University of Kent. And um, it was really cool. It was really interesting. It's, it was founded in 2013 when iconic comedian Linda Smith's uh, personal collection was deposited at the university and was then established to celebrate, preserve, and provide access to the archives and records of British stand-up comedy and stand-up comedians. It's like a treasure trove of all of these different recordings and flyers and everything, reviews, press files, admin documents from all these different collections, from all of these comedians, but also the Funny Women collection, which is my was my main draw, obviously, Ooh. Funny Women. And you could you could watch it with everything there. It was really cool. And sort of see everything. It's really cool. What what's like the highlight of the Funny Women archive? I don't really know. I love like actual. I mean, all the documents are really fun. But I liked looking at all the t-shirts and how the brand had changed. That sounds. I'm not sure that sounds really nerdy, but I thought it was really interesting. And especially like so, it's the 20th anniversary of Funny Women. Well, hey, if you've if you've been going, why why is the website in gold? It's because it deserves to be in gold. It's been been around for twenty years. Haven't we all turned gold when we turned? 20? Right, I did. I think I don't know. <laughs> I, um, but um, yeah, and it was really interesting, sort of going back and seeing all of the bits of paper and things that we now use i'm so like such a gen z person i'm like paper what <laughs> what is that carmen is used to the cloud so paper is like yeah a... i grew up on the cloud what can i say yes <laughs> it's a fantastic object paper it's something she's never seen before no basically we do all our work on google drive okay guys um <laughs> on the cloud and so um yeah and it was interesting from an admin perspective like actually having to deal with files like you know that thing on like the internet where it's like your your files and your folders but well, turns out before the internet 
they had actual folders and files like physical ones who who knew um, so, anyway but sorry i'm thinking i'm like getting distracted just on this bit it's like far more interesting i don't know i'm just anyway it's quite telling about who i am i guess but anyway um it was really cool seeing how there was like vhs box is it just i was wanted to say i guess they're just called vhs's aren't they sorry right anyway yes. there, was v, there was a vhs of the final from like one year and also there was like dv cassettes which i they were like tiny and i thought that was really cute yeah and there was all these different bits of the final on different things because like our finals now on next up comedy so it was just you know streaming that just tickled me uh really but um i also found i was looking through like I ended up picking up one of the folders uh, from the archive and um, it was part of the Linda Smith one. And it was like a script of Linda Smith and Hattie Hayridge's Fringe show from 1993. And it had their notes on it. And I think that's like amazing. And I think it's really cool because anyone could go to the archive if they want. You just email special collections at the University of Kent and you can go you can go you can go see it which is is just amazing that it's just available that's something like i think people should publicize more because i've also recently discovered the archive at the bishopsgate institute in london mm. that has like the biggest lgbtq collection wow that sounds amazing and it has like wonderful things they even have like a kink archive which is <laughs> super exciting <laughs> well the university of Kent had a british cartoon archive as well and a pre-1700s book archive. There's less exciting. You've said the King Archive, and I think that's that's really taken the top prize, isn't it, really? But that's just our ten, there's archives for everything. Who who knew? I guess like Who knew? Yeah. Well, us and now. If you're listening to us and you like comedy, I guess the Canterbury British stand-up one yeah. is amazing. Definitely. And you can find more things about funny women. And visit Canterbury. Lovely place. <laughs> I may or may not have gone to the University of Kent. Do they leave you alone? Do they let me the roam wild and free in the archive? No, so you email them and there's like a room in the library that, um, that you sort of email them and they go, well, what do you want to see? And you go, oh, I don't know, all of it, none of it. I don't know, because there's so much of it and they can't bring everything up. And so I sort of just said a, a general spread like a sort of chucky tree board of of archive material um, um, and um yeah then they sort of you show you show up to the library and then they take you to this room where they then bring the material to you but because i'm really special no because i work for funny women i got to kind of go behind the scenes at the um archive and they showed me that i got to go in the basement and um like look at all of the like look at all of the all of the archives but the whole the whole lot of it and it's like shelves and shelves of material from funny women but then also from all of these comedians and it was really cool it was really it was really fun and it's like you know when you get to go somewhere that's like authorized first people only and like i don't know i just enjoy being like an authorized person <laughs> and i think that's that's the point of this podcast, right? We're bringing people to, we're authorizing people to come behind the yeah, scenes with us. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It was, it was really cool. <laughs> I was just gonna say shout out to Archive Claire that showed me around. Thanks a lot, Claire. And um, Ollie Double, the stand-up comedy professor and icon, just general icon at the University of Kent. He, um, he's sort of massive part in uh, gathering it and everything. So it's really cool. I think it's really important how stand-up gets documented and it kind of makes it 
takes it it gets taken more seriously because people are actually documenting and putting the work in because it's i mean we're living in a in a sort of world where comedy and the arts and the arts of especially comedy are really like looked down upon which is ridiculous because how many people watch comedy like everyone you know it's everywhere it's so important and so it's things like the archive and people who are writing books on comedy people who are writing about it about the origins of it it's just really important what are your thoughts on that yeah i i think you're right and like comedy and stand-up comedy probably in particular are a way in to the arts if you want to call it art i like calling it art or craft it's a way in that everyone can get in because it's very easy you just need like a a pub and a few people gathered around you for you to to say what you want to say and to to craft some jokes around Mm, it's definitely like one of the most accessible forms i'd say i definitely and that's why it's so important and really cool that things like that exist that's all from us until next time and do rate subscribe and listen wherever you listen to your podcast you know all those things podcasts tell you to do bye bye